everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, bringing you another episode in our EMT season two series. As you can see, or hear, I'm really excited about season two, as I feel we're taking the original EMT lectures and putting them on steroids. In this new series, what we're going to do is we're going to first identify the knowledge you should have after listening to the podcast, and we're going to call those knowledge domains. Most EMT programs throughout the United States should identify what you should know after a chapter, and most books will call that a knowledge domain. All right, what does that mean for you, the EMT student? Well, after you review a chapter, attend a lecture, and complete your coursework, there is certain knowledge that you should retain for testing purposes. In each of these podcasts, I will discuss those knowledge domains and what you should know. And if you have a question after this podcast, then you know what you need to go study for. In today's lecture, we're going to be talking about EMS systems. EMS systems is normally the first chapter of all EMT programs as we're attempting to build your foundation before moving on to teaching you what medical emergencies are out there and what you're going to do for those medical emergencies. All right, now let's talk about the knowledge domains for EMS systems. At the completion of this chapter, the EMT student should be able to define the emergency medical services system. The student should be able to name the four levels of EMT training and those skills associated with each level. The EMT should have a fundamental understanding of the historical background of the EMS system, as well as an EMT should know the 14 components of the EMS system. Additionally, the EMT student should understand medical direction and the role the EMT plays with that medical direction. The EMT should have a fundamental knowledge of the Mobile Integrated Healthcare and Community Paramedicine Program, as well as understanding the purpose of the EMS Quality Improvement System. The EMT should have an understanding of how EMS plays a role in the public education regarding disease and injury prevention, as well as understanding their roles and responsibilities and the attributes that all EMTs are expected to possess. Last, the EMT should have an understanding of how the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act affects patient privacy, and this is otherwise known as HIPAA. Okay, let's talk about the EMS system. First, the EMS system consists of a team of healthcare professionals. The EMS system is designed to provide pre-hospital emergency care and transport. This system is governed by federal, state, and local laws. Now, in regards to training and certification, in most states, there are four levels of training. At the bottom level is the emergency medical responder or otherwise EMR. The next level above that is the EMT program, which this is your certification. And after this will be the advanced EMT, which is also known as an AEMT. And last, at the very top would be a paramedic. In breaking down these certifications, the EMR is that basic level. This level of training provides individuals the necessary skills to start basic first aid prior to EMS arrival. The course focuses on teaching individuals how to use basic tools to provide basic first aid. Now, as far as the certification you're attempting to attain, EMT, this level of training requires at least 150 hours of classroom instruction. 
Most states will require more hours of instruction, and that just once again depends from state to state. At this level of training, the EMT is providing what is referred to as basic life support. When the EMT arrives at an incident, the EMT is responsible for conducting a primary and secondary assessment of their patient and based upon that assessment, provide basic emergency life support. The EMT is also responsible for transporting the patient if necessary. The next certification is called the Advanced EMT. This level of training takes the basic EMT and now provides some aspects of advanced life support. In most states, the advanced EMT will learn how to administer IVs, utilize advanced airways, and administer certain emergency medications. Finally, we have the paramedic. Paramedic training is considered to be the most advanced and extensive for pre-hospital care. Most programs will not allow an EMT to apply for paramedic school until after working as an EMT for over 1,000 hours. The actual paramedic program consists of over 1,000 hours of instructional training. Most paramedic programs actually require a student to attend 1,300 hours of training. This training includes classroom training, otherwise known as didactics, hospital internship, and eventually paramedic internship. Because of this training being so extensive and so long, some schools offer degree programs as well as allowing you to obtain your paramedic license. Paramedic students will learn how to utilize advanced airways such as endotracheal intubation as well as learning emergency pharmacology and cardiac monitoring. Let's talk a little bit about the history of EMS. EMS is truly grounded in the simple fact that human beings have been helping each other since the dawn of time. From that first time that someone received an injury in the field and another human being helped him, we can pretty much state that's when EMS started. Yet there are significant events which we can go back into history to see when certain aspects of EMS came about, such as in World War I, where volunteers started to utilize ambulances to transport the wounded. During World War II, we saw the field care medic. And subsequently, during the Korean War, helicopters for the first time were utilized to transport wounded soldiers out of the battlefield after being treated by field medics. Now, one of the most important takeaways about EMS is this. Prior to 1966, there was really no set standards. And then a research paper came out and it was entitled Accidental Death and Disability, The Neglected Disease of Modern Society. And this paper described how people were dying from traffic collisions throughout the United States to the point that they compared the war in Vietnam and one of the bloodiest weekends to being one of the bloodiest weekends in the United States regarding traffic collisions. And it was from there that federal and state laws started to be implemented to implement certain federal agencies and programs to deal with traffic safety. At this point in the 1970s, the Department of Transportation published the first EMT curriculum. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons published the first EMT textbook in 1971 and really is the precursor to the textbook that you are using in your program. As we work our way to modern time, there were efforts to basically standardize the levels of EMS education. 
Now, what you should find interesting as well is National Registry did not start for at least two decades. When I first became a paramedic, there was no such thing as National Registry. Um, and you did not have to take a National Registry test to actually work in your state. You would take your state test. So you can see how much has changed since then. Now, according to most textbooks, and I want to cover the information that's in textbooks, in the late 1970s, the DOT developed and recommended National Standard Curriculum. During the 1980s, many areas enhanced the EMT National Standard Curriculum by adding EMTs with advanced levels of training who could provide key care in the form of advanced life support. And finally, in the 1990s, the National Highway Transportation Safety Act developed the EMS agenda for the future. And this document was a plan to standardize the levels of EMS education and providers. In regards to the components of the EMS system, there are 14 components that you should be able to identify. And these are those components. Number one, public access. Number two, clinical care. Number three, medical direction. Number four, integration of health services. Number five, information systems. Number six, prevention. Number seven, EMS research. Number eight, communication systems. Number nine, human resources. Number 10, legislation and regulation. Number 11, evaluation. Number 12, system finance. Number 13, public education. And number 14, educational systems. In this next part, I will be breaking down the 14 components into smaller bits to hopefully aid in your understanding and retention. Public access and communication system. First, we're gonna talk about public access and communication system. For EMS to work properly, the public must have access to the 911 system. Early access is essential in most emergencies. The 911 system is considered a public safety access point. When someone calls 911, they will talk to a trained dispatcher who's in a communication center. Based on the information the dispatcher receives, the dispatcher will dispatch the appropriate medical crews to ensure that the proper equipment and responders are activated. In some areas, Dispatchers are trained to provide medical instructions to callers prior to EMS arrival. This system is known as emergency medical dispatching. Clinical care. Clinical care describes the type of equipment that is to be utilized based on the certification level of the healthcare provider. For example, an EMT is only allowed to use certain equipment, whereas a paramedic is allowed to use more advanced equipment. Human resources. Human resources or otherwise known as HR, has been established to focus on the person who delivers care in the healthcare system. There is literature that encourages EMS systems to protect the well-being of EMS providers and also to have a program where EMS providers can advance in their career. Medical direction. While EMTs receive training in basic life support, an EMT is allowed to provide certain medical care based upon the direction of a medical director. Each state at the local level has a medical director who has authorized the scope of practice for EMTs, advanced EMTs, and paramedics. For most EMTs, the care they provide has already been established through standing orders and protocols. Protocols are described in a comprehensive guide delineating the EMT's scope of practice. Standing orders are a part of protocols and designate what the EMT is required to do for a specific chief complaint or medical condition. 
If standing orders are in place, an EMT does not need to seek medical direction for, before providing care. Most EMT's orders are considered offline. Offline standing orders are considered indirect. The other type of medical direction is considered online or direct. This is when a medical provider calls directly into a physician who will tell the medical provider on what type of treatment the patient should receive based upon the assessment. Legislation and Regulation As mentioned before, the EMS system is governed by federal, state, and local laws. At the federal law, there is a national EMS scope of practice. This model provides the guidelines for the minimum skills for each level of training. Now at the state level, most states will regulate the operations of EMS providers. At the local level, which would be considered a county, the medical director would provide oversight and support for the EMS system and personnel. The medical director at the local level will usually establish local protocols and treatment. An example of this is in your ENT program, you will learn how to administer activated charcoal. While some states allow EMTs to administer activated charcoal, there are some states and local EMS systems that do not allow it. While local programs will teach you about your local curriculum, all programs must still adhere to both state and federal regulations. Integration of health services. The best way to describe this category is that pre-hospital care must be continued in the emergency room to ensure that patients receive continuity of care. Quite simply, when an EMT brings a patient into the emergency room, the emergency room should continue the proper care for the patient based upon the EMT's assessment and reporting to ER staff. Mobile Integrated Healthcare The Mobile Integrated Healthcare is a new method of delivering healthcare that utilizes the pre-hospital formula. MIH is a direct result of the Patient Protection and Affordability Care Act. The goal is to facilitate and improve access to healthcare at an affordable price. In this service model, healthcare is provided within the community setting as opposed to a patient visiting their doctor or the hospital. For example, both the Beverly Hills Fire Department and the Los Angeles City Fire Department have now employed nurse practitioners that are on certain ambulances. There are also jurisdictions within the state of California that have a new paramedic position, otherwise known as community paramedics, and this may also exist in other states. In this new healthcare model, these medical practitioners will provide non-emergency medical care, such as performing a healthcare screening or evaluation, monitor a patient's chronic illness or condition, or possibly even draw bloods for laboratory samples. This is all done to hopefully keep the patient out of the emergency room so people who do need the emergency room will have those hospital beds while also tending to the needs of patients that do not require hospitalization. Evaluations. Now evaluations allow the EMS system to evaluate itself. What is working? What is not working? This is one of the many reasons why we have to get recertified every two years because the EMS doctors that govern what we do and not do will evaluate what has been working and what has not been working. They may take away certain skills, add skills, take away equipment, add equipment. This is all part of the evaluation process. Information systems. When I first started in EMS, we did our patient reports on paper. 
Well, obviously today everything is digital. However, digital documentation works very well for researchers as they're able to pull that data to provide basically statistical analysis or analysis of what we were just talking about in regards to evaluations. And this can improve overall patient care. System finance. At least in the state of California, most EMTs will work for a private ambulance company when they first begin. Due to this fact, EMTs will be required to gather patient information to also include their insurance. This allows an ambulance company to bill an insurance company for services rendered and possibly the patient themselves if they don't have medical insurance. Throughout the United States, EMTs can be both volunteer paid or a combination of the two. Because of this, ambulance companies do need to make money. EMTs will be required to gather information and secure signatures, which those signatures will allow the ambulance company to build an insurance company. However, much of this information that we get from our patients and we put on our documentation reports is governed by HIPAA standards. Education systems. As an EMT instructor, I must maintain my paramedic certification. Maintaining certification is usually required to be an EMS instructor in most states. EMT and paramedic training programs must adhere to national standards established by these two organizations. It is important to remember these organizations as you may be tested on them. The first organization is the Committee on Accreditation of Educational Programs for the Emergency Medical Services Professional. The second organization is the Commission on Accreditation of Allied Healthcare Education Programs. Prevention and Public Education While public health will attempt to educate the public about injury and disease trends, the EMT also plays a vital role as EMTs could possibly provide direct education to the public through community classes. Additionally, an EMT at the scene of an incident could provide education by just giving information to a patient family on possibly the proper use of a medical device or medication. Sorry about that. Also, an EMT might provide some education on why it's important to wear a bicycle helmet to a group of kids. So an EMT does play a vital role in prevention and public education. Our last component, EMS research. If you have a long career in EMS, you're going to see certain skills go away and you will be educated on new skills. You may also experience new medical equipment being incorporated into your assessments of your patients. All of this is based on EMS research. By taking the statistical data, patient reports, and working with medical directors, the EMS field is able to apply evidence-based practices to make EMS more efficient. This is all designed to improve patient outcomes. Your role plays out because you gather data as you provide medical care to your patients and document that care on your EMS reports. Okay, let's now talk about the roles and responsibilities of the EMT. First, let's remember that in the United States, EMS professionals can be volunteered, paid, or a combination of the two. Despite this, the roles and responsibilities will always remain the same. These roles and responsibilities that you're about to hear or read have been gathered from various textbooks that are utilized in EMT programs throughout the United States. All right, so what are those roles and responsibilities? One, keep vehicles and equipment ready for an emergency. Two, 
ensure the safety of yourself, your partner, the patient, and bystanders. Three, operate the emergency vehicle properly. Four, be a leader on scene. Five, perform a proper evaluation of the scene. Six, if needed, recognize the need and call for additional resources. Seven, gain access to the patient. Eight, perform a patient assessment. Nine, based on your patient assessment, provide the proper medical care. 10, if needed, provide emotional support to the patient, the patient's family, or possibly other first responders. 11, maintain the continuity of patient care by working with other medical providers such as ALS. 12, complete the emergency incident you have responded to. 13, uphold all medical and legal standards. 14, Ensure the patient privacy and information is protected per local and state laws. 15. Provide administrative support. 16. Continue to develop yourself professionally. 17. Cultivate and sustain community relations. 18. Give back to your profession. Now, on top of these roles and responsibilities, there are certain professional attributes that EMS professionals should possess. Those attributes are one, integrity, two, empathy, three, self-motivation, four, having a professional appearance and hygiene, five, possess self-confidence, six, have proper time management, seven, be a good communicator, eight, be a team player and know when to use diplomacy, nine, be respectful, and 10, be a patient advocate. In my class, these 10 points are something I drive home with all of my EMT students. I will attempt to do the same thing with this podcast. Having integrity means that the EMT will be fair and honest and uphold the code of ethics. Having empathy is probably one of the most single important skills that the EMS professional can possess. Having empathy means that you are thoughtful and aware of the needs of the patient, the patient's family, and anyone else affected by the incident. In regards to being self-motivated, you can either be a good EMT or a great EMT. Being self-motivated means you're always looking to not only make yourself better, but the organization you work for and the system you work in. Simply, you're trying to make things better. Now, as far as professional appearance and hygiene, it is my opinion that this is where professionalism starts with. If you're in your proper uniform and you look professional, people will treat you as a professional. In your career, you're going to work with EMS professionals that are not professional, and it usually starts with their personal and uniform appearance. In EMS, you must be self-confident and you must know what you know and be willing to ask for help when there is something that you don't know. Being an EMS professional means you're always educating yourself and others. While empathy is a very important attribute, so is communication. You must know not only how to talk to people, but how to listen. Today, most people do not know how to listen. Be empathetic and listen to the patient and the patient's family, and then communicate what you're going to do or what you're not going to do. Oftentimes, people don't understand what we do in the EMS field, so it is imperative that we communicate and educate. The EMS field is all about working with others. It means that we are a part of a team. I have personally witnessed EMS incidents fail because professionals were unwilling to work with one another. Teamwork is imperative, and so is diplomacy. Sometimes it's better to resolve an issue after the incident is over. 
there will be those times that you may have to intercede because it's detrimental to the health and safety of the patient or the EMS professionals on the scene. Now, I have told you that empathy is very important. Empathy also means you're a patient's advocate. Yes, you're a patient's advocate and you must ensure that your patient's needs are being met and you advocate for the patient not only on the scene, but in the hospital when you drop them off. This also includes keeping proper documentation of the patient to ensure the continuity of their care. Unfortunately, you will witness EMS professionals treating patients poorly because the patient was treating them poorly. Despite how the patient is acting or treating you, all patients deserve empathy, compassion, respect, and the best medical care that you can provide them. If you're not willing to do this, then you're definitely in the wrong profession. Another aspect of patient advocacy is the patient's confidentiality. There are strict laws which state what an EMT can release or not release. You need to be familiar with not only federal and state laws, but local protocols as well. You should understand what can be released by law to the police or other social agencies, such as the Department of Children's Services. Patient confidentiality has fallen under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, otherwise known as HIPAA. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a lecture on EMS systems. From my experience, most programs start with this lecture and continue to build that foundation that is needed before we actually start teaching you the elements of being an EMT, such as understanding topography, medical terms, and subsequently, the core of the program, which includes medical emergencies, traumatic emergencies, and the list goes on. Before I let you go, I want to remind you that season two will have 40 plus lectures. Additionally, there is exclusive content if you subscribe to this podcast on either Anchor FM or Spotify. This description gives you exclusive access at thepublicsafetyguru.com to study guides, quizzes, and other resources. Because season two is going to be so extensive, we are developing the website and making it better and more exclusive. In a few short months, we will be providing one-on-one tutoring services for those EMT students that need a little bit more. Once again, I want to thank you for your continued support and listening to this podcast. I only ask that you share this podcast with other students in your course. As with Season 1, Season 2 will remain free to listen and download. Good luck with your EMT program and happy EMTing.